woke up and I had a severe pounding behind my left eye. And it was the kind of pain, caustic pain, that you get when you bite into ice cream. And it was very unusual for me to experience any kind of pain because I was physically fit. and And it just gripped me. And then it released me. And then it just gripped me. And then it released me. I got up and thought I'd start my normal routine, so I jumped onto my cardiac glider. And I'm jamming away on this thing, and I'm realizing that my hands look like primitive claws grasping onto the bar. And I looked at my body, and, and I just I felt alienated from my body. I felt as though I was witnessing myself having this experience instead of being the person on the machine having the experience. Was that frightening at all? No. Hi, Nick. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Grew up in Terre Haute, Indiana. Two older brothers, the baby girl of the family. Father was a, an Episcopalian minister. Mother was a full professor of mathematics. And it was when I was in my PhD program that my brother, who was 18 months older than I, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, he was actually the the smart one of the three kids. He was very artistic, very poetic, very musical. He was the kind of kid who could make straight A's and never open a book or do his homework. Living in the shadow of that gave me kind of permission to be an underachiever because he was such a shining star. He went to college, and he came home, and he was essentially a born-again Christian. Stalking behaviors, preaching on the street corner. His art had kind of a a tinge of of hostility and anger in it. Is there a particular episode that stands out in your mind? No, I was, um, I was, you know, I can uh, recite numerous opportunities where he's on street corners preaching at the top of his lungs. And, um, but no, that was, uh, that was pre-stroke for me. And this is not information that I have chosen to really go back and recover and explore. Uh, having grown up with someone who perceived the world very differently than I did, yes, I was uh, fascinated about who we are as living beings because of my relationship with my brother. How is it that two people can experience the, the same event and walk away with completely different perceptions of what just happened? I spent six years uh, dissecting bodies in Cadaver Lab, and, and that was just thrilling for me because it's so absolutely beautiful. And then I also participated in the neuroanatomy lab for six years. There's 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 nothing more exquisite than standing elbow to elbow with first year medical students, teaching them about what organs are inside of the body and the the relationship between the different organs and how the organs combine into systems. There's there's, you know this is this is the artist's palette for them for the rest of their lives.
you have to remember that, that I'm a brain scientist. Anything at all that's going to happen in my brain, my first approach is going to be, ooh, this is interesting. Okay. I was in uh, my apartment in the city, and there was no noise going on that I was aware of outside of my apartment. The pain in my head was just uh, getting stronger, so I got off the machine. Everything in my body felt really slow. My movements were very rigid and jerky. There was no fluidity. It was as though I was listening to the machinery of my muscles. I became detached from my job and my relationships into the, in the external world and my, my stress related with any of that. I lost the perception of my body and the boundaries of my body. I felt that I was connected to all that is, and I felt a, an experience of, of euphoria, and, and I liked it there. And, and this is all while you're in the shower? Yeah, this is all while I'm in the shower. It was a great morning for a shower. <laughs> I got out of the shower, and I was walking around my apartment, and my right arm went totally paralyzed by my side. And it hits you, it whacks you like, uh, like a, a, a limb just, just hit you. I then realized, oh my gosh, I'm having a stroke. And once I realized I was having a stroke, my mind went straight to, I have to get help. human hemisphere is all about this present moment. It's all about right here, right now. Our right hemisphere, it thinks in pictures, and it learns kinesthetically through the movement of our bodies. Information in the form of energy streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems, and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like, what this present moment smells like and tastes like, what it feels like, and what it sounds like. We are energy beings connected to one another through the consciousness of our right hemispheres as one human family. And right here, right now, we are brothers and sisters on this planet here to make the world a better place. And in this moment, we are perfect, we are whole, and we are beautiful. My left hemisphere, our left hemisphere, is a very different place. Our left hemisphere thinks linearly and methodically. Our left hemisphere is all about the past, and it's all about the future. Our left hemisphere is designed to take that enormous collage of the present moment and start picking out details, details, and more details about those details. It then categorizes and organizes all that information 
associates it with everything in the past we've ever learned and projects into the future all of our possibilities. And our left hemisphere thinks in language. It's that ongoing brain chatter that connects me and my internal world to my external world. It's that little voice that says to me, hey, you gotta remember to pick up bananas on your way home. I need them in the morning. But perhaps most important, it's that little voice that says to me, I am, I am. And as soon as my left hemisphere says to me, I am, I become separate, I become a single, solid individual, separate from the energy flow around me and separate from you. And this is a portion of my brain that I lost on the morning of my stroke. When I lost that language, I became detached from my job and the stress related to that or my relationships in the external world and my stress related with any of that. When all that was gone, I was left with the experience of the present moment. And was there any fear at this point? No, there wasn't any fear. You know, there, there wasn't any reason for fear. I, I never calculated that there was reason for fear. The only emotion I felt was, was the bliss of euphoria. The absence of experience was one of bliss. So this was not a negative experience for me. You know, to the neuroanatomist inside of me, this was a fascinating experience. And it's like, wow, you know, this is so cool. How many scientists do have the opportunity to study their own brain from the inside out Once I realized I was having a stroke, my mind went straight to, I have to get help. A lot of people ask me, well, why didn't I just call 911? Well, the portion of my left hemisphere that understood what 911 was, was swimming in a pool of blood. My landlady was home on maternity leave right below me. I easily could have gone downstairs and mumbled something at her and she would have taken me to the hospital. She didn't exist for me anymore. So I had a plan, and that plan was I was going to call work. I went into my office space, and I could not remember my phone number at work, but I remembered that I had a business card there. But when I looked at the business card, I could only identify pixels. I could not read. I would drift out into the right hemisphere consciousness, which was a state of, of bliss, a state of euphoria. But then I would have a wave of clarity, and I would come back to focus, and it was like, okay, this is not the card, this is not the card, this is not the card. How many cards did you end up going through? About an inch worth in a three-inch stack. And how long did that take you to get through? It took me about 45 minutes to get down through that inch. This is not the card, this is not the card, this is not the card. Well, when I was teaching and performing research at Harvard Medical School, in the lab, we would specifically look at the brains of different individuals, some who would be diagnosed with schizophrenia, schizoaffective, and bipolar disorder. There was a shortage of brains, 
And because there was a shortage of tissue available, I started traveling around talking to organizations, family organizations of people with mental illness. So this is a real human brain. This is the front there was of the brain. this moment during my presentation that the audience would realize, oh my gosh, she wants my brain. They would look down and, and it was like we're all in the first grade and don't call on me, don't call on me. I thought that I had to do something and I started traveling with my guitar. And when that tension in the room would rise, when people would realize, oh my gosh, she wants my brain, I would just pull out my guitar and I would sing to them the brain bang jingle and they would giggle and all the tension would dissipate and then they would decide, okay, she's cool, this is all right, and they would let me talk to them then about the ins and outs of donating your brain to science through the Harvard Brain Bank. When I finally found the card, I put the phone pad next to the card. I did not understand numbers at this point. I did not understand uh, telephone at this point. I had to identify the shape of the squiggles on the, the phone pad uh, to the shape of the squiggles on the, the business card. My colleague was at his desk and he picked up the phone. To me, he said, he sounded just like a golden retriever, and I thought, oh my gosh, I cannot understand language. Then I said to him, this is Jill, I need help. At least that's what I tried to say, but what came out of my voice was... And I thought, oh my gosh, I sound like a golden retriever. Well, he recognized that I was in trouble and that I needed help, and, and he uh, communicated to me with soothing tones. I have no idea what he said to me, uh, but my right hemisphere picked up on the soothing tones, and I knew that he would get me help. I had this fear right at the core of my being, that was probably my only fear, that my insurance company would not cover my medical costs in the event that I went to the wrong place. That is absolutely insane. (laughs) Isn't that insane that in that condition, that was my fear? I went down my steps very slowly and unbolted my door. Then I crawled back up the steps and sat on my couch and I waited for, for what seemed to be uh, perhaps the, the last few moments of my life. What went through your mind at that point? Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. felt no fear at that point what is there to fear you know when you're in that position there's what is there to fear I felt an experience of euphoria and if this was the end of my life and I dissolved into that tranquil peacefulness then that was not something that I needed to fear what kept you motivated to hold on then I hadn't gone through the entire morning with the intention of my life ending, but it wasn't something that I needed to fear. I didn't feel that death was something that I needed to fear. At no time did I feel fear of that. Fear wasn't the appropriate response. If, If anything, I felt gratitude. 
What kept you holding on, though? Was it just a sense of... You know, there is a, a self-preservation instinct that was still remained for me. That circuit hadn't gone offline. Is it fair to say that you were still enjoying the experience, enjoying that, that feeling of bliss? Oh, yeah. I was, I was, I was in a space of tranquility. Did, did you have past memories that you were still able to to access at that point? No, I was nowhere other than right here, right now. So you weren't thinking about your family or anything like that? No, the circuitry that understood my family or recognized any of that, that was all gone by then. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I just felt everything shift, energy lift, and just release. Spirit surrendered. I let go. I was very surprised when I woke up later and I actually was still alive. I was alive. I was still in this body. I was still capable of opening my eyes and yet my body felt weight, pain. I felt like a ton of lead laying in the bed. Just breathing hurt my ribs. I felt like a ton of lead laying in the bed. Information coming in through my eyes was like wildfire burning my brain. The sounds in the environment were loud and chaotic, painful. There were two bodies, two people off to the left of me. They were two of my colleagues from the brain bank. They were examining the CAT scan on a light box. I was aware of their presence. I was aware of the gravity of their affect. I could not understand the language that they spoke, but I could certainly read volumes of what their bodies were communicating, which was that this was a very grave situation. Early on, someone came up to you and asked you who the President of the United States was. First, I had to figure out that they were asking me a question and that I needed to pay attention. Then I had to focus on their lips in order to try to match the sounds of the words to the movement of the lips. And then once I could get the sounds into my brain, then I had to figure out what those words, what those sounds meant. So I would have to ponder the word president, president, president for a very long time. All I had was pictures because my right hemisphere thought in pictures. Then I had to figure out what a United was. Then I had to figure out that a United States was packaged together. What is a United States? Then I had to figure out what is the relationship between what is a president and what is a United States? This is taking hours upon hours and 12 hours for me to contemplate this to figure it out. Well, in the meantime, of course, when a physician asks you who is the president of the United States, they would like that response within 30 seconds. The slate had been wiped pretty clean, and I had to learn new vocabulary. I had to learn to see color. I had to be told that color exists and that I can see that. I had to be taught that I could see three-dimensionally. If you, for example, were standing behind a table, 
I, I had to be taught that you did have legs behind that table, but that you were, but that I could not see those. Uh, otherwise, I would just see you and think that, that you were an entity with no legs. It took eight years for me to, to completely recover everything. Earlier in this conversation, you were talking about how you've chosen not to explore certain parts of your memory from before the stroke. How did you come to that decision? No, I think that it's safer to say that pain from the past is pain from the past. And I don't feel the need to re-explore pain from the past. I'd much rather focus on the beauty of the present. So I've had no desire to explore a lot of my past. Okay. She died that morning. Who who I was before the stroke, that woman, that person whom I had been, her life and her her memories, she died when my spirit surrendered. When you had lost your language, was there a sense that you felt trapped inside your body? No, I never felt trapped inside of my body. If anything, I felt that I wasn't in my body. But it, was, it must have been a frustrating experience to, to try and communicate with people. You would think that, for looking on, in from the outside. It wasn't like that for me. I didn't care if I communicated with you at all. <laughs> you cared, but I didn't. I think that's one of the perceptive um, errors that we make. You know, you project your fears onto me. How many times have you asked me about fear? I didn't have any fear, but if you were in that position, you would anticipate that you would have all this fear. So as a result, you treat me with, with a different kind of perspective because you have fear. And I don't want your fear. I don't want your sympathy. I want your compassion. And that's very different. It's complicated, though, because I think, like for myself, I find someone else acknowledging a negative emotion that I have as a form of sympathy. But I wasn't having negative emotions. You were. Why would you come to me and bring and want me to validate you when, I'm sorry, I don't have the energy to do that. Now, you can go and, and have that conversation with somebody outside of the room and commiserate with one another, and that's beautiful. I'm 100% supportive of that. But you don't bring that into my room if I don't have the energy to deal with you. Then it becomes a complicated situation because it's it's hard to tell what the other person is is feeling because they have compromised language facilities. Yeah. You know? And more on top of that, you're going to project all your stuff onto that person. You know, the only, the only other thing I, I, I would throw in is that... I think it's really important that people don't freak out when someone has a brain trauma. What they need from you during that beginning time is love. Just go in, trust that they're going to be okay, trust that they're they're in there and that they do know you and and because we freak out, we have all this fear of oh my gosh, this person, they don't recognize me. It's always going to be like this. Well, frankly, if I'm experiencing a neurological trauma, it's not about you. It's about me, and it's about what do my brain cells need in order for me to recover. Most people think, oh, my God, you know, let me lose an arm, but don't let me lose my mind. And frankly, losing your mind isn't that bad of an experience because you don't know what you've lost because you've lost it. 
I realized that I was 100% one day when I went water skiing and I felt that I was a solid again instead of a fluid. Do you miss that sense of fluidity? I really do. I, I miss, um, I miss the, the constant reminder that I am connected to you. You know, you may be uh, a thousand miles away, but you're atoms and molecules, and I'm atoms and molecules, and, and the distance between us is really minute in comparison to our perception that we are so separate and we are so distant from one another. I miss the constant visual reminder because visually uh, everything blended together for me. What we see so clearly defines our perception of reality. And when you see boundaries and you, you look at edges and everything is separate, then, then you see everything as separate. But when you don't focus on the boundaries and everything blends together, then you, you, that elevates inside of your perception of, of what is and what is your relationship to what is beyond you. So I do miss that, but it's conceptually, it will never leave me. I feel so blessed that, that for eight years, I, I was so clear that I was connected to everything because I am. You've been listening to Love and Radio. You can find out more about Jill Bolte-Taylor at drjilltaylor.com. The show was produced and edited by Nick Vanderkolk, with special thanks to Ben Popick. Please visit our website at loveandradio.org.